A lot of us are very tired of all the work your way into God's affection kind mm. of religious systems. Mm. And, and we just don't want that anymore. I mean, it just hasn't worked. It hasn't healed us. It hasn't changed us. And, um, and I don't believe that that's the God of Scripture. Life. Faith. Spirituality. More Than This with Sheridan Boise. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the More Than This podcast. I'm Sheridan Boise, author of Resurrection Year, Resilient, Unseen Footprints and a few other titles as well. Now I know it's been a little while since I've given you a full episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for sticking with me. There is a very good reason. There's lots of very good reasons as to why I haven't uh, had quite so much time for putting out full episodes of the podcast. I've got a big secret project that I've been working on for the last year or so, which uh, I can't tell you about yet, but you will be the first to know when it is time to unveil that project. I'm working on a documentary. Uh, I've got a big Australian speaking trip coming up in May 2017, also in Germany and other places in Europe. You'll find details of all of those at sheridanvoisey.com 066, which is where you can leave responses to today's podcast as well. Anyway, thank you for sticking around and thank you for listening to this podcast. I kind of break my silence because the Shack film is here. Now, if you have not heard of The Shack, my goodness, what a story. A few years ago, a guy named William Paul Young sits down to write a story for his children about a man who goes and meets God in a forest shack. Well, little did William Paul Young know at the time just what was going to follow. The Shack, which really was just a little story for his kids, kind of got out and became a publishing phenomenon in fact, uh, as you listen to this interview, you'll find that uh, my my figures are out of date. Even as I'm talking to him, it had been selling so quickly. At the time, it sold about 4 million copies. Now it's like 50 million or something. Like I'm, No doubt that is even out of date as well. And it's now made it to the silver screen. Now, if you know anything about the story behind The Shack, you know that it has been life-changing for many, many people. They have seen the creative portrayal of the Trinity. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is something that they can grasp. They have felt that its exploration of God's presence in the midst of pain has been something that they can finally relate to. For some, this has been an absolute life-changing book, and now, no doubt, a life-changing film. For others, the whole story is little more than heresy. Now, in 2008, when the book, as I said, had sold just a few million copies back then, William Paul Young dropped by the open house show that I was hosting at the time to tell the whole story, to explore the book's meaning, to actually share the very tragic and brutal and messy complex story behind it, which is, of course, his own story, and also to respond to his critics. Now, as you listen to this interview, you're going to find that uh, Paul Young is both an astute guy. He was very warm, very welcoming, had a lot of time for me. I've got a lot of time for him, whether you like the book or not. Take a listen and let me know in the comments or on social media what your response is to Paul's response to his critics. I would love to know. And if you've read the book, if you've seen the film, let me know in the comments. SheridanVoisey.com slash 066. Without further ado, here is William Paul Young. Okay, so here's the story. This man called Mackenzie is on holiday with his family when his youngest daughter, Missy, is abducted. Her bloodstained clothes are found in an old dilapidated shack and of course everybody expects the worst. A little later, as the search for Missy continues, Mac receives a strange note from Papa asking to meet him at the shack. And so begins the story of a man who meets God and discovers where he is in the midst of pain and evil in the world. William P. Young's self-published novel, The Shack, is what we're talking about. It has sold, with next to no advertising dollars spent at all, over one million copies and counting four million copies, as Paul reminds me now. Some say the book has changed their lives. Others say it is heresy. William Young is actually in the country right now. 
He goes by the name of Paul, though. It's nice to have you here. Ah, it's great Paul. to be here. And, and it's Paul because that's what everybody knows me by. My father's William Henry. I'm William Paul. My firstborn's William Chad. My first grandson's William Gavin. Right. And we all go by our middle names. But I wrote this for my children, so it was kind of a joke. You know, put William P. Young on there. In the very first manuscript, I had it actually written by the main character, mm-hmm. Mackenzie Allen Phillips, with William P. Young. And then too many people thought that it was a real story. Well, when it got out, you know, we had to take <laughs> Mackenzie off the authorship because people wanted to fly to Portland, Oregon to meet him. To meet him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up taking him off, but the William P. Young stuck for a while. In the new editions, uh, it actually says... W.M. Paul. Okay. And, uh, so it's being changed. And you were just correcting me there, four million copies. I mean, you would never have seen this coming, would you? Uh, <clears throat> you have to understand that I am not a for real author. I'm an accidental one at best. And I've never published anything. I've always been a writer in the sense of uh, writing gifts for my children and for my friends, but never um, did it even cross my mind when I was writing this story for my children that it would be published. Mm. So the first run and the only intended run of the shack was 15 copies after Christmas 2005 at Office Depot. 15 copies becomes 4 million copies to the absolute anguish of the variety of publishers that actually knocked it back. There was about 26 of them that turned it down. Half of them faith-based publishers, half of them not. Mm -hmm. And the faith-based publishers, their response was basically... You know, we don't have a niche for this. Uh, it's too edgy, yeah, even though we like it personally. And uh, the non-faith folks, it was, we don't have a niche for it either. Yeah. And it's got too much Jesus in it. We got stuck between Jesus and edgy, you know. <laughs> it's not a bad place. But, yes. uh, <laughs> Paul, why do you think The Shack has done so well? Why do you think it has sold so phenomenally without, I heard something like $300 that you had spent initially on advertising. It, yeah, we went through 1.2 million books out of Brad's garage. Uh, with less than $300 in marketing and advertising. So it was, and even that was a waste of money because we don't even know if that particular Word. internet ad even ran. Mm-hmm. It is a phenomenon. And and for me, it's a God thing, you know, uh, because I wasn't looking for this. I wasn't asking for this. I didn't see it coming. And uh, and the the overflow of it has been so marked and so pronounced in in terms of transformational kind of change in people from religious backgrounds, non-religious backgrounds, it, it doesn't seem to matter. And um, I think part of what has really resonated in the hearts of people, well, there's a few things, but but one for sure is that religion has been offering something that, that is more, but it hasn't been able to actually deliver. Hasn't delivered it. No. And people know that. So a lot of us are very tired of all the work your way into God's affection kind mm. of religious systems. Mm. And, and we just don't want that anymore. I mean, it just hasn't worked. It hasn't healed us. It hasn't changed us. And, um, and I don't believe that that's the God of Scripture. Mm. I think the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all about relationship. And we get invited into that. And the questions Mackenzie asks a lot of times are theirs. Mackenzie has turned out to be, uh, he is me, but he, he's turned out to be every man in a sense being able to ask the questions in the face of tragedy, things that are happening in Mm. our society. Mm. Well, you've picked up the two big questions of life, really, in this book. One is the very nature of God. Yeah, who is this God, really? And secondly is, you know, the goodness of God. You know, where is he when it comes to evil and suffering and things like that? You know, we live in a world that is full of uncertainty. It doesn't take much. Go to a funeral, actually go to a wedding. (laughs) There's a lot of uncertainty. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, in this world of uncertainty, we can't even seem to be able to, you know, get God to be certain in his behavior. And uh, so where are we going to land? Where are we going to put our feet in terms of certainty? And it has to be the character of God. So if we get the character of God wrong from the get-go, everything else spills in a wrong direction. And, uh, and frankly, a lot of us who've grown up in a religious system, and I'm a missionary kid and a preacher's kid, the God that, that we began to believe in was largely our own fathers. You know, I painted the face of God with the face of my father for mm. many, many, many mm. years. Sure. And, uh, and that is a God who is distant, angry, he's the deistic G-O-D out there who is looking for an opportunity to hurt us, punish us, uh, whatever. And it all comes down to our behavior. So we end up with a theology that is basically, you need to find a way to please God. And it doesn't matter if it's the Christian religion or any other one, it's, that's the premise. 
instead of a path where you learn to trust him, which yeah. is about his character. Yeah. So that is definitely central to the story. Paul Young is with us. He is the William P. Young, who's written uh, that uh, phenomenal best-selling novel, The Shack. This is Open House. Theopenhouse.net.au has the podcast and also the vodcast as well. Before we get into the story, I want to talk about that a little bit more of your story, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you've got a kind of a postscript in the back of the in the back of the book that actually shares a little bit of your own struggles there. And it sounds like you went through. I mean, when it comes to the character of God, you've just mentioned it. You're wrestling to know exactly who God is with the kind of upbringing that you had. But there was childhood abuse for you there personally. Was. There were addictions later on in life. There was, you know, my uh, because I'm writing this for my six children, and they're 28 to 15. They're not young. This is my story. This is saying, and, and Kim, my wife, is the one who really uh, asked me to do this. Uh, you know, would you put in one place someday as a gift to the children how you think? Because it's a little outside the box. And so this is what I wanted to do was put wrap up my story, but put it into a fiction. So it's true, but it's just not real in the exact same sense as that's in the book. And I'm a, I'm a missionary kid, and some of the upbringing that I um, had was very difficult and that included sexual abuse within the tribal culture that i grew up in and then when i went to the christian missionary boarding school it continued there Mm. Um, it included incredible disassociation uh from my parents who were of a generation i mean they're in their 20s they're they're just kids themselves but they're in a generation that didn't know that they had baggage and they were sold out thinking that if they just did what they believed God wanted them to do, then God would take care of the details. Oh, yeah. And that included the, the children. Kids, yeah. 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 And so, you know, there was a whole generation of us that got kind of smashed yeah. during that period of time. Well, Wes Stafford, who runs uh, Compassion International, straight away his, his story comes to mind. Exactly. And there's a bunch of us like that. So all of this pain, I I'd I'd turned it into performance. You know, I, I became a perfectionist performer. The metaphor of the shack is that it's the house of the soul. The weekend Mackenzie spends in the shack represents an 11-year period of my life, the process of trying to deal with all of the junk that was inside my my own soul. Mm. And so the, the shack is the place where you hide your addictions. It's the place where you store your secrets. You don't want anybody to know. It's the place where your heart gets broken and your dreams are dashed and it's held together by lies. And all of us have a building on the inside. And it depends on the kind of upbringing, the love we received or the lack of it, the presence of a father or the lack of that presence, the anger, the addictions that are that other people put on us. Mm. All those things go into building that inside house. And for what some of us do, like me, I created a facade, you know, a very thin building on the outside that I wanted people to believe in, believe in this, you know. And uh, I even wanted God to believe in that if I could just work hard enough to please the people that I was in front of, mm. maybe I could get the affection. Maybe that would change what was going on inside the shack. Mm. And you know what? All my years of religion never healed didn't, me, didn't never touch touched it. anything. No. And how many other people would feel exactly the same way, that they're actually trying to make their way into God's favor and into their own favor, into the favor of other people around them too? And, and it's a hard way to live, you know, mm. because you're always feeding off of what you perceive the expectations of the people around you are. And and even when you get the approval, you don't believe it because you're aware that there is a shack, that there is stuff that they don't know. You mentioned the book um, in 1994, everything, you know, the, the train came off the rails, so to it speak. Did. You don't say much more about that. Can you share much more? Not about in the book. I there? talk about it quite freely because my 11 years began January 4th, 94, and it ended at the end of 2004. And um, that 11 years was, was begun a day when I received a phone call from my wife, Kim, and she basically said, I know, and I'm waiting at your office. And what she knew was that I was involved in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And at that point, my little religious perfectionist performer, that, that little layer that covered up all my shame, just blew to bits. And I had to make a decision whether to kill myself or face Kim and try to deal with this. And I made the choice to face Kim. And she really was instrumental in my healing process, not because she was forgiving and loving, it's because she really came at me with every bit of fury and sense of betrayal and drove me to deal with all of my stuff. Confronting reality, I guess. Oh my gosh. And and it was it was a process that just about killed me. There's on multiple occasions. I mean, it was so difficult because I'm unraveling everything all the way back to my childhood trying to figure out if anything's real. And at one point, you know, I went into counseling, that was another piece of this. 
And, um, and it took Kim and I 11 years to heal. It took us all the way to 2004. And I never thought it was going to happen. Well, thank God you actually kept on going. You know? Well, you know, I mean, and that's, that's grace. That Every bit of this is grace. You know, for Kim to say last year in a circle of relationships, who all, you know, we did not deal with this quietly, hide it. I said to her, I cannot have any more secrets in my life. I just can't. You know, they're killing me. And, uh, and so that was how we began working on it. No more secrets. And, and she, she really communicated that she did not believe she would ever believe anything that came out of my mouth the rest of my life. And I, that was okay. I could, when I broke, when, I, when all this shattered, I realized so clearly, if, if nothing else, I knew I couldn't heal myself. All the effort trying to do the right thing, prayer, Bible study, fast, whatever it was, all the religious stuff, none of it was able to heal me, and I couldn't heal myself. Why would I think I could heal Kim now? Mm. And I had to let her go on her own journey with her own relationship with God to try to get to the place where there was even a possibility that she would even like me again. Yes. And that took 11 years. It yeah. took to the end of 2004 and the beginning of 2005, I was finally ready to write a little story for my kids. I was not ready. When did you start that. working through this process for yourself personally when it comes to your, your portrayal of who God was? Well, you know, I'm a missionary kid, so I've always been a little bit outside the box, you know. And so the portrayal, the imagery, one of the things that has got me into a, a little bit of controversy um, comes from being outside the box. Theologically, I'm very solid. You know, and I've gone to Bible school and seminary and all that stuff. God's not male or female. You know, people say, well, do you believe that God is the way you portrayed him? Hmm. And I say, well, do you believe that God is a grandfatherly old Gandalf with an attitude? Hmm. You know, God's not male or female. God is spirit. And all maleness and femaleness are both derived from God's character. It's not like he's 51% male and 49% female. It's all imagery is going to be inadequate, whether it's male or female. But there are ways to bridge in, in, in terms of helping us understand the character of God and the nature of God. And there are lots of feminine characteristics and masculine characteristics throughout Scripture. So I, I felt comfortable being outside the box. And when I'm writing this for my kids, because I'm not thinking anybody else is going to read this anyway, other than a few friends, and they all love me. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I can do whatever I want, right? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and this was a way to to tackle some of those paradigms and to ask the questions that I wasn't allowed to ask growing up. You know, the questions that would have been labeled as rebellious or, you know, being a smart aleck or something. Mm. You know, you shouldn't be asking this because, you know, yeah. it's a, an affront to the character that's, and nature of that's God. That's problematic, isn't it? It We've is. Got to, all of us have got to have a safe place where we can come and ask the deepest questions in our soul, especially about the nature of God. And also to bring to the table what we have, whatever it is, mm. you know. And so that's what's happening around this book. People are bringing to it. And a lot of people's responses to it will tell you more about what's going on in their hearts than it will tell you about the book itself because they will read it based on their perceptions of theology or doctrine or reality or history or whatever. The beautiful thing is that the book is doing something that nobody anticipated, most of all me, and that it is penetrating to the heart of people across every kind of age group, religious perspective, whatever. And it's introducing a conversation that you that you talked about, and that is, who is this God really? This is Open House right across Australia. William P. Young, better known to his friends as Paul yep. Young, is the author of The Shack, and he's with us now. I want to, uh, we're going to have to uh, touch on some of those uh, controversial areas. We'll do that just a little bit. Let's, let's just get into the story, though. We've heard your story, which is really quite fascinating. Because here you uh, present Mac, this guy who's deeply troubled, who is deeply feeling guilty as well as grief and everything for the loss of little Missy, his, uh, his youngest daughter. I don't think anybody can read that part of the story or indeed for probably the rest of the story without a tear in the eye. And so many yeah. people say that. I think the characterization of grief that you've actually incorporated there is really quite powerful. And so many people have actually said that. And I picked something so wrenching. And for those who haven't read it, the first five chapters are wrenching. They're not graphic, but they, they're deeply uh, difficult. I wanted... The deepest kind of pain, which I think is the relationship of a parent to a child, hmm. um, that loss or that pain. And because that deep pain asks the best questions. And those are the questions I don't want to avoid with my own children. 
pain is going to be a part of our world. So where is God in the middle of this? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the central mm. theme as we've talked about. And so Mackenzie meets God and Christians understand that there is one God and yet in a mysterious way that God is actually made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in your portrayal of the Trinity, as it's actually yes. called, the, the technical name that's actually given to that idea of God being one and yet three, tri-unity, uh, is certainly creative. So you've got the Father, who you call Papa, mm-hmm. who is actually an African-American female to, to begin with. Yep. Uh, you've got Jesus, who is a Middle Eastern carpenter. He that, gets to play himself. That's fair enough. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> then you've got uh, the Holy Spirit, who is kind of this wispy, Asian-looking woman who's very colourful and, and etc. A little out of the box, yeah. Sarayu, if I got the Sarayu. It's, Sarayu. A, it's a Hindi word, and the word actually means the common wind that catches you by surprise. Okay. And when Gitika Prabhu told me about what the name meant. I was on Skype and I was working for a company, web conferencing company and looking for a name for the Holy Spirit. And And I love the wind as a metaphor. It's all through scripture. And when she said, it's the common wind that catches you by surprise, I said, really? And she said, yeah, it's like when you are so hot, you think you're going to die. And out of nowhere comes this wind that cools you down and changes everything. Mm-hmm. And that became the name because it just fit. Plus, you know, it's a little enigmatic itself. It's a little hard to pronounce what the rolled R. Even in the audio version of the shack, Mac can't roll the R. He's, right. just, he's just a white guy. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yes, there is the Trinity. The Trinity, you have to understand, is so central to what I believe anyway. Yes. Because it, it embeds relationship directly in the nature of God. And to me, that's essential. Yes. So why this portrayal, though? You yeah, know, okay. wh- what was behind the idea of, yes, God the Father, Papa, being a female yeah. African-American woman, et cetera, yeah. et cetera? Wh- why a, the choice of these There's images? different layers to, as to why. One is I wanted to attack the white grandfather Gandalf with an attitude paradigm. I did. I don't want my kids just thinking of God that way. The second thing is, is that it fit the story. Mackenzie has a huge issue with his father. And he is very, you know, he, he, he relates to God as father from the neck up, as it were, intellectually in all the theological ways, but he doesn't allow that to penetrate to his heart. Because again, like me, because Mackenzie is me, mm. he's basically painted the nature and character of God with the face of his own father. And he has a, a very difficult history with his own dad. Mm. So that's two reasons. One, uh, third one is I wanted to... Uh, watch God build a bridge to Mac's heart that bypasses that bias that Mac has against God as father. And so that became part of it. And then when I was looking for who in, in say, Western culture, I'm a Canadian living in the U.S., but who in my experience has exhibited some of those nurturing, loving, in-your-face, but I am absolutely committed to you unconditionally, that kind of love who has done that and in my experience large black african-american women have done that and and i come from a black culture even though i'm white i didn't know i was white really until i went to boarding school Mm -hmm. and it was a huge disappointment and (laughs) (laughs) but uh but here you know in from day one when i'm thinking about doing this for my kids that was there and theologically it was to push the paradigms and saying you know what any imagery is going to be inadequate. I don't care if it's male or female. And there's lots of female names and descriptions of God in Scripture. That part's I'm I'm fine with. And I just wanted to tackle that mm. that thing. Mm. As far as the Holy Spirit, again, the wind, it's again dealing and and the Holy Spirit is referred to in, at times as a woman in Scripture. So I don't have any problem with that at all either. Yeah. So what other misconceptions in your mind were you, you were trying to kind of clear up then through writing the shack when it comes to God? Yeah. Um, the fact that relationship is central to the heart of God as opposed to religion. Religion is you performing your way to try to get into the heart of God. Whereas what I think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done from before the foundation of the earth, you know, from in terms of religion has this concept like God sort of was planning how to make the most, you know, these people as miserable as he possibly could. You know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of the sense. But that's not true at all. That that relationship is the one we get invited into that was planned for and accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. And so you have this whole scenario of relationship. And that's really important to me because when you look at religious systems in the world, 
most of the time you have a singularity, a monad as a god. And, and that's why for in Islam, for example, you don't have a god who loves. You have a god who's compassionate because he can perform the activity of compassion, but he cannot love. Because for a monad, a singularity to love, he would need to have that subject object. And within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love is already mm-hmm. there. There is this other centeredness, this other relatedness. So that was another thing. For me too, there's a passage in the book where Mackenzie is talking to Jesus and Jesus makes this, basically this statement. You know, Mackenzie, I, I didn't come to make people Christian. You know, uh, I'm not one. And, uh, and that's got me a little bit in trouble. But, mm-hmm. but it's true on the face. He's Jew. Jesus was never a Christian. Sure. And, technically, yes. Yep. Yes. Technically, he, he, he. The term wasn't used until after he rose from the dead, and he didn't say, oh, "I got to go back and get my card" or whatever. Mm. And in that section, I'm trying to point out there is a Christian religion, you know, that is just the same as any other religion. That you need to find your way to God through doing the right things, effort, work. You know, that's guilt-driven, motivated by fear, uh, punishment, of, you know, all that kind of mm. stuff. Mm. And and I'm saying that is not what Jesus came to do. Mm. Now, people ask me and they say, Paul, are you a Christian? And I say, would you please tell me what one of those is? And I'll tell you if I'm one of those. Because I don't mind being one of those. In the U.S., I like to tell them, because look, I'm a Canadian, not a Republican. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so so you know, I think that God did not come in Christ to set up a new religion called Christianity to compete with all the other ones that existed. I think he came to destroy religion at its base by introducing a relationship by reaching to us and see that's another point that's got me into a little trouble too is that there is a scene where uh, Mackenzie point blank asked god so do all roads lead to papa mm-hmm. and jesus laughs and says no they, most roads don't lead anywhere but i will tell you this i i will go down any road to find you and because people hear me use the word any road, they, they suddenly think, again, that I'm some kind of a universalist. Yes. And, and what, that's just the incarnation. That is, I am the good shepherd, and I will leave the 99 to go find the one. Yes. This is God who says, I know you are so lost in all your darkness and your, uh, your inability to see. I am coming to you. That is Papa coming through the door yeah. in a way that Mackenzie can embrace him, sure. even though it's a struggle for him. It builds a bridge. Yeah, There's one point in the story where Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or uh, Papa, Jesus, Sarayu, uh, and Mackenzie are all in the shack, and uh, I think it's breakfast time or something like that. And at one stage, Jesus drops a bowl of batter, and right. they all have this big belly laugh, yes. particularly you know, Mackenzie, isn't, or particularly God is actually having this big belly laugh. What's going on there? The whole idea of you know Jesus fumbling, stumbling, making mistakes, things well, like see, that. See, we have this idea that somehow Jesus had always this deity card up his sleeve, that he could pull it out at any time. We think that he would never gotten a calculus question wrong. We think that a mistake is the same as a sin. We think that when he's laying in the crib as a baby in the manger, he's thinking, okay, what do babies do? Oh yeah, I gotta cry now. This is a human being. This is a 100% human being. This is a person who had to learn how to make pieces of wood that would work right. He didn't Mm -hmm. start by making the first door he ever made, Mm. and it just was perfect Mm. the first time. It's it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? God learning to do something. It's amazing, Mm. but we either have to acknowledge and embrace the full humanity of Christ, or we say, you know, he was kind of just dressed like a human being, but, you know, at any point. See, and I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus did nothing apart from his relationship with the Father, that he was absolutely helplessly dependent. And he did not pull the deity card out of his sleeve in order to do a miracle or to do anything that he did. That his, because he says, I don't do anything unless I hear the Father, see the Father do it. it. I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. He says, I am absolutely helpless. And to me then, he becomes what faith is. Because now he and the Father have come to live inside of me and now my dependence is on that relationship rather than on my ability to try to yes. make this or yes. do this or try to be and imitate Jesus. Yes. The contrarian, of course, would say, well, Jesus in his glorified state, uh, yes, he's still human. He's still ascended in human bodily form, and yet he's a glorified Yeah, see, and, and, and we want God to be um, austere and distant. I mean, that's part of the old paradigm. 
And uh, w for example, we can't imagine that God would laugh or even though it's in scripture, mm -hmm. you know, where did fun come from? We think, you know, maybe Satan created it after the fall, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Where does laughter and joking and all those things come? I think they're all embedded in relationship. If you're if you're in your family and suddenly there is a good laugh and everybody is enjoying, that is one of the times where you sense the joy of relationship in a way that is transcendent. And I think that that transcendence is it literally runs through the heart of every human being because we are created in the image of God. I would agree. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. This is Open House right across Australia. Paul Young is with us. William P. Young is the name on the front of the shack. You you come across as a very approachable guy. Uh, so I, I don't feel too bad in running some of the criticisms of, about the book theologically absolutely. with you. No, and giving you an opportunity I think I've to respond. heard most of it. So. I'm sure you have. There's, yeah, yeah. there's many websites, as anybody will find out, dedicated yeah. to them. <laughs> because there's been some significant questions raised about the theology of the book. Sure. Um, some of which you've already uh, touched on. I'm not going to go through all of those because we'd be here for a long time. Some of them are very unfair, I must actually say, right from the well, and but That's par for the course. And let me just say this. Overall, I am so positive about the controversy because it's an example of people bringing to the table what they have. And, and it's one thing to bring your emotional history. You know, you've been hurt by a father. Your tendency to look at the fatherhood of God is going to be a distance thing. You're going to bring that to the table. Well, theological paradigms are just as binding, if not more so sometimes. You have the story of the prodigal son. You got the one son who knows he can't perform. You got the other son who thinks that he can perform himself into something he already has, the affection of the father. Mm. But, but because he's blinded by his own performance, it takes him longer, if ever, in the context of that story, to enter into the relationship that is already his. And uh, so, you know, people bringing their theological paradigms, as far as I'm concerned, is part of the conversation. I wish some of them would actually read the book. Yeah. You know, that would be helpful. That's fairness. You've got to be treated fairly. Yeah. People have got to read the book and actually say, well, I'm going to read the book and find out for myself what this guy is actually saying and then engage rather than, yeah. It and some of the, the largest voices uh, on the net have not read the book. Yeah, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. I have read the book. Uh, and I appreciate <laughs> Just so that. you know that. <laughs> There's this whole issue of portraying God at all in image anyway. Some would say right from the word go that uh, that's moving close to the breaking the second commandment, not having any idol before us, etc. Romans, it talks about, you know, which, which I think is images of yeah, God, which is which is a, an absurd argument as far as I'm concerned. I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to say that the Sistine Chapel is blasphemous because, you know, these incredible artists, Da Vinci and Michelangelo and all these guys portrayed God in imagery. Are we worshiping? That was the issue with imagery. Are you going to then take you know, do I actually believe that God is a large black African-American mm -hmm. woman? Mm -hmm. Well, of course not. I don't think anybody would believe that. Some would say no, but, but they may believe that Papa, Father, is not a black African-American woman, but he is, she is, uh, the same kind of personality, the touchy-feely kind of personality that you've portrayed. That's a uh, line actually. Well, what, about, what about Ezekiel? What about the man who is God, who is walking along the side of the road, and he sees a, a baby that's just been recently born thrown away in the ditch? And he rescues this baby, raises it as his own daughter, falls in love with her, marries her, and then she turns out to be an adulteress. This is Ezekiel writing the very character and nature of God into imagery. It's in the Psalms. You know, if you want to put together a whole person, you can start with Psalm 2. You got nostrils. You can go to other passages where you got the eye of God, the arm of God, the finger of God. You can work. You can get a whole composite you know, image out of all the parts, if you like. Imagery is imagery. If you want to worship that imagery, then you're dealing with breaking the commandment. Not that the commandment isn't, isn't broken in our own hearts in many respects. How many people are worshiping money and looking for that for security instead of God? Well, that's imagery. You know, that's putting something center and competing with the heart of God. I mean, if, if you're afraid because the economy is falling apart or because politicians aren't doing what they're supposed to, you've got something else in the center of your world. That's idolatry. And, and that's the challenge. And, and I'm saying that not as a value judgment. I'm saying that as an observation. And I think that's what Scripture does too. Some people want the sense that, and they felt, including my own mom, that that this was a demeaning, that we were dragging God from his holiness and from his otherness. To me, it doesn't at all. What do you, who do we think Jesus is if he's not God? And he has come into our world and he has been involved in work and sweat and tears and laughter and all of these things. That is God. Holiness existed before there was sin. 
And the otherness of God is wrapped up in his love, not in his reaction to yeah. sin. Okay. Well, that takes me to the second point then, because one is the, the whole portrayal of uh, Mackenzie being in God's presence and yet not really being all that bothered, not really being all that affected to some degree. Yes, the relationship grows and, oh, oh, and some hey, heavy questions are asked. Look but, at the disciples. They were in the presence of God for three and a half years, and they didn't seem particularly bothered by it at all. Oh, there were times, there were times though. I mean, I'm just thinking about the portrayal of people who meet God, and there is the awesomeness of God. You know, Isaiah, you know, whoa, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel fell mm-hmm. on his face. Mm-hmm. Happened in Revelation when it comes to, to the person of Jesus. Even, even uh, Peter, you know, with the miraculous catch of fish the presence of Jesus he fell on his face and said, sure. depart from me, I'm a, I'm a man also of, uh, of unclean lips. There is kind of that awesomeness of God that I, I didn't find so much in the book when it came to when Mackenzie is yeah. in the presence of God. I, I understand. Yeah. Just, just a person. I can understand almost. that. I can understand that. And I think the awesomeness of God came through in very many different ways than having to have Mackenzie fall down on his face, face in front of God. And uh, I think part of the awesomeness of God came through in the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved one another. I think that set Mackenzie back. I think, I mean, Mackenzie doesn't get away with anything in terms of the story. There's no point that God is saying, well, you know, you can, that's okay. You can, you can go ahead and be a liar. That's all right. No, he doesn't get away with anything. Mm. He faces the judgment scene in the cave scene and that that's quite a quite a switch actually creatively artistically i thought you did an amazing thing they're turning it around i don't know if i agree with it theologically but creatively i loved it yeah Um, (laughs) well you might you might find it interesting that that is one area that the theologians have not have a no i haven't read anything about that yeah yeah Yeah. and uh, have been hugely supportive on a number of different levels in that scene You, you know i understand what you're saying this is a this is a novel and, and when you just turn it into theology, you're going to miss the point. Yes. It's not a systematic theology. Yes. At know. the same time, and I would agree with that, and, I, and yeah. to the people that I've heard that have caned the book, I've said, let's remember, this is a novel. It's a work of fiction. Yeah. It's not a systematic theology of doctrine. Having said that, it's very, very clear you're trying to teach well, theological and, and ideas. And not only that, I think all of life is theology. And I think that God is embedded in the details of our lives. So any conversation is fundamentally at its core, somewhat theological, because it got, it's got to involve a sense of God or the absence of God in the conversation. Mm. So I understand that too, but we're dealing with what, 265 pages. We have whole libraries that are dedicated to try to figure some of these things out. And because of the ambiguity, you have people on all kinds of sides. Yes. Yeah. And you've chosen big topics, the biggest topic in the world. Well, I'm suggest. writing it for my kids. You know, <laughs> yes. what if I'm not there? It's, es- you know? it's escaped to the populace. Everybody else has gotten it right across Australia. Open house. William P. Young is with us. Paul Young to you and me. The other question mark that's been raised about uh, the book and the theology of the book is that the, the issue of sin. At one stage, Papa says, I quote, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my job to cure it. Now, again, it's a nice sentiment, but the no, question I think would it's be... fundamentally theologically sound. It goes right back to the early church and Athanasius. It is basically the rewording of the early church's doctrines about who God was. Mm-hmm. This is this is strong orthodoxy. The same with people have been objecting to that there is no hierarchy in the Trinity. That's another one. Yes. While subordination within the Trinity was considered heresy up until recently. In my portrayal in the book, that is orthodoxy. That is going back to Athanasius. That is going back to the Nicene Creed. Those are actual statements of orthodoxy. That's what's surprising, is that there is that there is a whole wing of religious doctrinal thinking that would disagree with that. Yeah. But, but I'm coming from an orthodox position on this. But it's hard to argue biblically that God doesn't judge sin or judge people I, or judge you, nations. You're using two different words. You're using the word punish when you went through quoting my, my passage. Yeah. And now you're using the word judge. Yeah. See, I think those are two very different things. Right. And just let's take the word wrath if we want to take a word that's a difficult word for, for people to deal with. Yeah. And people have said, you know, there's just not enough wrath in the book. Well, what is, you know, does, here's the question. Does God do anything that is not motivated by love? No. And see, I agree with you, see? Mm-hmm. But that means that even wrath has to be motivated by love. Mm-hmm. And scripture says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Mm-hmm. That's very different than the wrath of God is revealed against the men themselves. And it doesn't mean that there's no judgment, but even judgment then has 
the fundamental reality of love behind it. We've so, got the flood, though, haven't we? We've got the flood where, you know, the world was judged. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. You know what? When we come to the issue of who is this God really, where are you going to start? You're going to start with the flood or you're going to start with the person of Jesus because Jesus says this, no one knows the Father. And he's referring to everyone in the Old Covenant. They don't know the Father. They don't know. And even if you go back through Scripture, there is time and time again where God is calling them to intimacy and face-to-face relationship, even mm. on Mount Sinai, mm. where the giving of the law. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's all the way through there. But Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah. If you want to know, I don't say anything unless you know the Father says it. So you can look at the person of Christ, and you have to look back into the Old Testament from a Christological point of view, not starting from the Old Testament and trying to figure it out. Yeah, but we are told that Jesus will actually judge the quick and the dead. Again, (laughs) and I'm not worried about judge, because I believe that judgment, however he does it, he judged sin on the cross. I don't know what that means, and this is why... You know, there's difference of opinion because there's ambiguity. How does that actually look? What does that actually do? For example, the, the, the understanding of hell, people have said, is separation. Well, the clearest scripture is that those who are in that torment, whatever that is, experience it in the presence of the Lamb and His angels. That's the Revelation passage. It's not separation at all. In fact, there is no, there is no scripture, not the Thessalonians passage, of, about that hell itself is separation and and we've got doctrine that separates god from jesus on the cross etc we think that that god could not handle it in in the sense that he couldn't look upon sin or whatever the reason is and he had to leave and that's not orthodoxy and that's that's an idea of separation that's neo-arian and you actually have to deny the deity of christ to separate god from christ upon the cross and, and Paul himself says, and this is why in the book, one of the images I use is that, that Papa has nail scars on his wrists. Oh, which has also raised some questions from the theologians as well. Well, and, but not from very many of them, because most of them know 2 Corinthians 5.19, where Paul says, I know exactly where God the Father was on, in terms of the cross, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And so there is a unification. The the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox particularly, they often had icons, windows to help understand, not images to worship, but windows to help understand where God the Father is impaled on the cross behind the Son, and the Spirit is also there. So you've got this tradition within Christendom itself that says this is the reality, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were involved in our redemptive process. Mm. And that's very different. You know, people say, well, he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where Jesus enters deeply into our humanity and does not sense the presence of the Father for the first time in his experience. But he makes the statement of faith that says, but into your hands I commit my spirit. So I don't see separation on the cross. Mm. Let's move on to the U word, the universalism word. Sure. You've certainly got that a fair bit as well. The idea that uh, all roads lead to God and that in the end all people will be reconciled to God. All, all people will be in heaven. I guess we could actually put that in a in street level terminology. You've already touched on the fact that, you know, uh, what you were saying there when, when it comes to Papa saying, I will go any road to actually get to you. you so you've, you've covered that. There's another point in the book where uh, Papa is actually saying, quote, uh, in Jesus I have forgiven all all men for their sins against me, but only some choose relationship. That's directly out of Second Corinthians five nineteen. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is as close to a direct quote as anywhere in the whole book. Yes, out He's of Scripture, the Savior of all men, especially. Well, and that one's be, well, and that one's out of Timothy, right? Oh, Timothy, yeah, Timothy chap- yes, yeah, yes. chapter four. Yes, and this is a this is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers, and that's a quote. And so I think it's the composite image, though, that starts to build throughout the book uh, as the idea is that well, all will yeah. get to well, well, let's, will let's all break, get, people get to heaven, do you think? I don't know. I, scripture leaves it ambiguous enough so that it is a possibility. I don't know. And I don't, I don't make that statement and I don't say this is what I believe and this is a doctrine. I've written a really a concise response to that. Uh, in in the way that I write on Wind Rumors, which is a website that I write on, and it's called the Beauty of Ambiguity or Mystery. And you know, it's there is ambiguity to Scripture. This is why we have 256 kinds of Baptists in the United States. You know, that there is disagreement because of the ambiguity that exists. If it was clear as the nose on your face, everybody would believe the same thing, and nobody would have a problem. 
but there is built-in ambiguity and i think god built it in on purpose and i think that the purpose of that in in part is to reveal your heart when it comes to a position of doctrine what are you going to do are you are you going to stand on your position of truth or are you still going to love and that was the issue in the early early church in terms of uh, the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. So what are we going to do? I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question about how God's going to resolve all this. If he could find a way to save every human being who's ever lived, I mean, to and, and that they would then enter into the embrace of the Father, would I, would I like that? Would I want that? The answer is absolutely yes. Hmm. I mean, that's where my heart is, everything else. Do I know he's going to do that? I don't know. Because scripturally, it would suggest that there is going to be a real hell, and unfortunately, there's going to be people... Well, you it. know what? I believe there's a real hell. And, and I don't know exactly what it is. I know it's spiritual in nature because it was designed for spiritual beings. So I, I don't know what all that means. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that is under uh, conversation right now in, in all levels of theology. So, so you know... Me, I, I'm not a universalist in the sense that I, I have a dogmatic belief that, you know, this is what's going to happen. But I tell you, if God can figure out a way to bring every single human being into his embrace, I am all for it. And, but if he does it, if people will, will resist that, let's go back to another issue of universalism. I believe that everyone, every human being was included in Jesus in terms of, of what occurred on the cross. So to me, the issue is not salvation because of that passage that we said, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind. Especially of those especially, who believe. Especially of believers. You know, those who wouldn't make it any other way. <laughs> the, the, the elect or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. But in that sense, everyone is included, that everything is for, through, in, by Jesus Christ. So the issue no longer is the issue of salvation, and that's the good news. The issue is relationship, repentance, and confession. Do you want to enter into this relationship that you, it's already yours? See, this is the story of the prodigal father that was so radical. This is what made the community of that faith at that time so angry that they wanted to crucify Christ is because he portrayed father in a way that was unheard of. And in that story, there's no question as to whether either of the boys, the one who went away to a far land or the one who's upstairs trying to perform, are ever the sons. They always are the sons. And the love of the Father is constant. It's because they don't comprehend the love of the Father that they keep themselves outside that relationship. Is a person capable of doing that for eternity? Yes. So, yes, the possibility is definitely there. Do I know that God will win the heart of every human being eventually? I don't know. All right. Well, th there are a number of other things, and a lot of them are very technical when it comes to the nature of the Trinity and the subordination you were talking about there. Is is the Son actually subordinate, or are they all perfectly, uh, they're all equal, but are they all, is there some sort of authority relationship there? It starts to get very, very technical. We'll actually throw some links onto our website, and people can start thinking that through and reading that for themselves and exploring that for themselves. And yeah, and, and engaging I would, in the book. Yeah, and I would suggest uh, Baxter Kruger stuff as well, who's uh, with me on this trip. and. Baxter uh, has a website. You can just Google Baxter Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, -E and that'll run you into a whole bunch of information as well that also explores that. Yeah. In the back of the book, you talk about uh, that, you know, your, your dream for the, the shack is that you actually turn it into a film. Uh, because actually, you... that wasn't my dream. That was two of the guys in the group, Bobby Downs and Brad Cummings, who from day one, they both saw it as a potential screenplay. And that's actually happening. We are at the point now where I'm about to sign over the rights but um, it's not there quite yet. And we're working okay. out the details, forming the group. If it's done, everybody involved wants to protect the story because they really believe the story has, has the potential of an impact that is way beyond, quote unquote, Christian. Yeah. We don't want to end up with a film that gets left behind, if you understand. Yeah. And so there is... Uh, there, there is this... Ele <laughs> Cheeky one, aren't you? Well, you know, I'm a Canadian. What can I say? <laughs> you guys should be, you know... You're Australian. Good grief. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> We're <worse than> you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel right at home here, let me tell you. So, um, so, but there is real conversation about this and, and protecting it. And that's the protection for it as far as a story because the book's having an impact in people's hearts, even in the centers of studios. 
and uh, the book itself and people are wanting to protect it from that level yeah. so and you're talking about the movie you want to get it out there because you want to give uh, a quote uh, an accurate understanding of god's character and nature with all the theological questions that have been raised of it could you be inaccurate in any way in the, of course in the shack? I, I, would you change not an, would you change any of it no because it's it, the whole point of it is it's a book written by a human being it's obviously flawed i wrote it right and so the point is not to change it, to try to get it to conform with somebody's understanding of orthodoxy. Let it become grist for the mill. Let it become what causes or promotes a conversation because that's what's happening. And it's happening from the grassroots up. You know, to have, to have what's happened with this story. And, and I get about 100 emails a day. And they're not emails saying, nice read, I'm going to find something else to read now. Mm. They're saying... My relationship with God has been absolutely transformed. I've, I've had a great sadness. I've had a great loss. And there is a lot of that out there. And people are saying, this has introduced me both back to Scripture, back to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and I'm talking about people who are coming from an atheist point of view. And frankly, you read the atheist literature, and I don't believe in the God that they don't believe exists mm. either. Mm. You know, So I, I am with them for the most part. Mm. And that's because they're attacking the religious God that I'm attacking. So you know, I'm, I'm finding that there is a conversation that is happening between people who care about each other that has never happened before. And that is so beautiful. Mm. You know, I got, go ahead. And you're getting people to talk about God. I mean, I love that. You know, people are exploring this. Exactly. And, you know. and reconciliation in, in relationships. I got a guy who wrote me and said, you know, I've never written to an author before, never felt the need. That's all changed. He said, because of your book, The Shack, my son, from whom I've been estranged for over 40 plus years, went on a spiritual quest by motorcycle that took him from Atlanta, Georgia, to Oak Grove, Oregon, which is across the whole U.S. For a few hour visit, he sent me this surprising email that simply said i'll be there in a few days bearing a great gift the gift turned out to be a much read dog-eared copy of the shack in the front of which he wrote many notations addressing them to father the one that means the most to me is there is healing in the giving and receiving of forgiveness so we did that and much much more mm. you get an email like that or you get i had a guy who stood up recently in a q a session tears running down his face he's in his 40s and he says i just got a phone call from my mother and uh, she's been an avowed atheist her whole life and she just called me and said son i finished the shack i now believe that there is a god and that jesus is the son of god mm. i take one email like that i don't care about all the controversy or you know what people are are upset about or how they're running up against people's paradigms i don't care you know it's it's worth it all well, it's been fascinating to talk to you. And, it's been great uh, to be here. And I appreciate your time uh, and it's been quite a bit of time too. Uh, and the conversation will continue. And uh, I'm sure more hearts are going to be touched by it. I'm sure more questions are going to be raised. Paul, thanks for your time. Thank you. You know, when that interview first went to air, there was uh, so much controversy around the book and its meaning that we had a network of radio stations that were taking the Open House show live and they refused actually to air that interview. They actually said, no, we'll take the rest of the show that night, but when it comes to airing that interview, we're going to drop out, play something else, come back afterwards. There's a lot of controversy around the shack and that's why I'd love to hear your comments on that. SheridanVoisey.com slash 066 is where you can let me know what you have made of the shack book or let me know on uh, social media. You'll find me at Sheridan Boise on Twitter and Facebook. Do please share this uh, podcast and post with your friends. That's the one little way it can get out. And if you haven't yet, I would love a rating on iTunes as well. Thank you for listening to more than this. I'll talk to you next time.